0: Cute Anon podcast is created and hosted by me, Chris. This episode has two brand new co-hosts who you'll learn more about in just a moment. If you like what you hear today, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're craving more and want bonus content and early access to future episodes, consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. Learn more at patreon.com slash anon. Welcome back to the show, I have Hana here, former roommate, friend of the pod, also known as Raw Milk Mommy, and Anthony, the only man in my phone who is alpha enough to eat raw beef liver with me, on air. <laughs>
1: That's what I'm here for.
0: And we're here to talk about raw milk and raw meat. The girls will be taking on the raw milk, and the boys will be taking on the raw meat.
2: Amazing.
0: So I'll start, Hana, by asking you about your new Instagram account. Um, how would you describe your new project, oh boy, Raw Milk I... Mommy?
2: That's a beautiful question. I would describe Raw Milk Mommy as the chaotic side of my brain, looking for some sort of attention and validation online. (laughs) Hell yeah. I have for so long just entertained myself with, for lack of a better word, sheer chaos. Very Aries of me. And that chaos has melded itself into my love of food and my love of being a silly sausage, which is the new silly goose um, jargon, as I've learned. What? Silly goose is out, silly sausage is in. That's what I've okay, learned.
0: Okay, you've got like your ear to the ground of these things. I trust your opinion here because yes. <laughs> I think you're one of my youngest friends. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that one's new to me. And you're in Portland. Which I don't know actually how that factors in. It's a
1: cultural birthing center for it it is. Phrases like that.
2: I do think that the the lineage of silly sausage is more across the pond. British oh, UK inspiration. Okay. That's where I got it from. Not Portland. I would say there's very few silly sausages here. There's a lot of raw vegans, but not a lot of silly sausages. So Raw Milk Mommy is also sort of like a gathering space for my international silly sausages to come together and just explore the chaos of food and sort of the more like for satire aspect of like diet culture or like the antithesis of diet culture, which to me is sort of just like an exploration of our own ancestry and our own bodies and our own physiology through food. So, yeah, there's sort of like a synthesis of those two, like satire, silly sausage energy and like ancestral nourishment energy that I am excited to be exploring with Raw Milk Mommy. Uh, It came about, I recently started working as a private chef here in Portland, um, which has been lovely and exciting. Um, And also a lot of my clientele are raw vegans or vegetarians or wrapped up in one or another of the diet cultures that I feel like are fed to us through the narrative of our Western culture, like the keto diets and paleo and all of those things. Um, And over the past year, especially, you know, through my exploration as being a private chef, I've delved pretty deeply into like the histories of our diet culture and you know what foods are actually nourishing for our physiology quick question yes do
0: your clients do they tell you what they want or do they ask for advice
2: Sort of, a, I would say a little bit of both. Um, the way that it works is like I get intake forms from all of my prospective clients that have dietary restrictions or specific diets that they're on, foods that they can and cannot eat, and then like cuisine and flavor preferences. And then from there, every week, I make a menu that is designed to their dietary needs. And I mean, as I navigate like being somebody who works in food and especially someone who works really intimately with people in their food habits i never want to like shit on anybody for eating in a certain way yeah and also i'm like oh baby you are not getting the nutrients you need by eating like cabbage and sweet potatoes and beans every every week um you know so there's room for both of those things
0: going back to your instagram i fully relate to like the need to have an outlet for the more chaotic part of your online presence. It's nice to have people follow an account fully prepared for the kind of content that you're putting out in that way. It's like basically yes. having a second account with a different audience that is more interested in that stuff. I mean, and I definitely did used to just go on main and go on about whatever <laughs> um, right-wing health trend or I don't know, however you want to describe it, like health trends. We'll we'll get into that more later, how to fit like different dietary trends into
1: political ideologies. I was gonna say I, I kinda like that, yeah, like chaos is like a central element of the uh the food finsta thing you got going on. That's pretty cool. Because like, I feel like food can be such an ideological thing, and so it's kind of nice to think. Yeah, I feel like that's how you attract people, pandering to like the chaotic parts of ourselves that like breaks free of the ideological stuff. But yeah, Hannah, would you say there is like any sort of ideology behind what you're trying to do with Raw Milk Mommy or something you're trying to push, or is it really just kind of like a chaotic, uh, uh, joker-pilled endeavor?
2: Um, that's a great question. I feel like I'm very predisposed to have strong opinions about things. <laughs> And also, I recognize that what works for me, especially when it comes to something that is so incredibly intimate and personal and largely cultural as food, I see a lot of like food Instagram accounts that really push. A specific ideology or a specific message whether it be like veganism plant-based diets um, or whether it be like i'm a you know carnivore and i only eat meat and eggs and butter and i think like liver king for example i feel like that's what comes to mind for me and i've always had like a very adverse reaction to those sorts of presences because i feel like It sort of takes away from the subjectivity of food, like everybody's experiences of consuming and preparing and sharing food are so different and they always have been. And it's also this beautiful space that people can like come together. Yeah, so I think less so ideology and more so through sort of like the satire, humor, chaos approach, celebrate that something can be beautiful and celebrate that there is like so many different ways to understand certain things. Maybe subtly underscore that like our bodies have evolved to digest and metabolize certain foods better than others. And like I am in favor of being kind to my body by giving it nourishment that's easy to digest. Um, But I'm not going to go around telling people like, you must do this in order for you to be healthy, because I think that that rhetoric is just like, well overplayed. And I think it just exasperates a lot of like the, you know, the shame elements of diet culture that exist right now. So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I feel like it's there's almost this like liminal space that I'm trying to exist in with raw milk mommy of like not being pretentious liver king-esque where I say this is good and this is bad, but also like sharing information that could be helpful for other people in terms of like their own relationship to their food and their nourishment.
1: Yeah, no, that's sweet. It sounds like a, it's it's kind of meant to be a fun thing, which yeah, is good. Totally.
2: I think food should be fun.
0: With vegan culture. Like, within our lifetime of diet trends, vegan definitely got a lot more popularity Mm -hmm. before carnivore. And with vegan or vegetarian, you could could be doing it for ethical reasons or health reasons or environmental reasons. And I'm still interested in the environmental aspect of it, but it is hard sometimes to just choose one um, for you, it sounds like you're m- more so just trying to take care of yourself and what's good for your body. And I found that often without you having to really try, if you're doing things that are good for your own well-being, that may also like correlate with things that are good for the environment.
2: Mm, totally.
0: Animals are kind of supposed to just think about what's good for them and to what naturally makes sense. Like any other animal species, it's pretty simple to look at them and establish, okay, this is the food that this animal eats, and this is why it's good for them, or why it works for them. And then, like obviously, they're not making choices out of what's gonna be good for climate change. It looks trendy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could argue that <laughs> conversations about climate change themselves are also a trend Mm -hmm. i don't understand that subject thoroughly enough to make a stance at this moment but diet culture is such a funny like people will say they're against diet culture and i just want people to think about what they're saying when they say that like everybody (laughs) has a diet
1: yeah like you're always carrying some kind of like underlying assumptions about what you're eating and why you should or shouldn't be Mm -hmm. eating it yeah yeah
0: Or even if you don't have any underlying assumptions, you still have a diet. Even if you have zero brain activity related to it, you still have a diet. Whatever you eat, whether it's chaotic or doesn't align with the health trend, that doesn't make it any less of a diet. It may be an unhealthy diet. I mean, I guess I know what people mean, and I'm just being a pain in the ass. (laughs) Like, they're against health trends that they find to be harmful for xyz reason but to say that you're against diets it's like okay girl (laughs) what are you saying you're against eating (laughs) i don't understand like everybody has a diet totally period
2: Yeah. And I think that's such a like interesting, almost like a reclamation because the word diet, there's like so much convolution, I feel like in our culture today and what you're saying about the whole like adversity to diet culture, A, makes sense. And also B, as you're saying, when you look at the word diet, it's like it's just what we eat. You know, and it's become so politicized and it's become so like wrought in Mm -hmm. patriarchy and colonialism and like fat phobia and all of these things. So I totally get it. And I also am like, babes, it's not that complicated. Like everybody eats, you know, everybody makes choices about what they eat. And I think that that's really what I find most interesting about conversations around food, especially when it comes to something like a diet where it's like a diet really is, you know, in our sort of modern understanding of it, like you should eat this because. And I think that there is some validity in like having conversations around the kind of food that we do eat you know, because going back to what you mentioned about animals, like animals don't think about climate change as far as I know, because they eat what is available to them locally and what is available to them seasonally. You know, like a squirrel's not going to like pop over to Walgreens and pick up like a papaya from across the world, you know, but humans do, (laughs) you know, so I feel like we have to consider the environmental impacts of the things that we're eating when we are eating in a globalized food chain. And yeah, I mean, like, I'm like trying to be like that squirrel that's like, well fuck, okay, it's the middle of winter and like I got my store of nuts and that's it. That's what's like bioavailable to me in my locale in the middle of winter. So I'm gonna eat that. That's a tangent. I feel like there's a lot more of conversation to have around like locality as an element of the food that we eat, which is something I'm very passionate about, but we can we can sort of put a pin in that and revisit it later. Or we can go there now.
0: <laughs> well, I love pretending to be a little animal. Pretending to be a squirrel that sounds like something
1: I would enjoy. <laughs> this is good advice generally. Yeah, like for a diet and otherwise.
2: Be more like a squirrel.
1: Yeah. It makes sense that that way of eating would probably lend itself to a more like environmentally sustainable model as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. because So I don't know if we each want to like dive in our own little like uh, diet histories and That's stuff. That's a great idea. But I, I was vegetarian from like 2015 until like 2020 probably. Um, and yeah, I mean, in, in my mind it was like for purely environmental reasons, like I definitely gained weight and like, didn't feel as good, but in my mind I was like, you know, doing God's work to kind of, uh, yeah. end climate change, do the Greta Thunberg thing. Okay. Um,
0: how long ago is this now?
1: I think, yeah, 2015 is when I started being vegetarian and then I was vegan probably like 2016 to like 2018. And then went back to just being vegetarian. And then I think it was COVID boredom that got me to finally get back on the meat. But yeah, no, I mean, I I, I definitely thought it was like for environmental reasons, I thought I was like decreasing, you know, like methane output and CO2 output and all that kind of stuff. But it does get to a certain point where it's like, okay, how much does like shipping soybeans from like across the world and across the country, like that requires like a lot of gasoline and stuff. And after a certain point, you like kind of stop I, I don't know, buying it. I mean, like, obviously, factory farming is kind of bad. I think that's something that like, people on, like, all ends on, you know, and like, diet trends and stuff agree. Like, yeah, factory farming sucks. But, like, yeah, I would imagine that probably just eating food close to home, like, does a better job than, you know, buying tofurkeys. Totally. <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm going to hop in real fast because um, we have a minute remaining on this Zoom. So do we want to hop off this and hop on the other one?
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Okay, we just started our second Zoom meeting. I uh, wanted to make an arbitrary rule for when Anthony and I would eat this raw liver. (laughs) I decided it would be whenever we had to start our second Zoom meeting. Oh my gosh. So I have this cutting board in front of me that has a few little raw beef liver slices. And I'll, I'll tell you where I got it from. I went to this grocery store it's called Local Foods. Their whole thing is that everything they get is within a certain radius of Chicago or of the store, the grocery store itself, so that it is possible to deliver it from the farm to the grocery store within a day. So I think it's like a 200-mile radius or something. But I got there, and I I saw this sign on the door. Local Foods is now per- permanently closed as of March 21st. So oh 4 God. days ago.
2: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, that's so depressing.
1: 4 days wow.
2: short. Oh.
0: And well, I took the bus without any phone service cuz I just sort of figured out the route and my phone has been without service. So I felt I felt very low tech because I did not order an Uber, I got on the bus. And I, uh, then I walked in the snow without any phone service until I found my little local foods grocery store. And then it was closed permanently. So then I just oh went to Jewel Osco.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's a real working class episode. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get the big Patreon dollars, you can take a private jet to your whatever farm you want.
0: Yeah, literally. That's that's going to be my um, end goal sustainability Behavior is taking private jets <laughs> to locally <laughs> sourced <laughs> grocery stores
1: to pick up raw meat
0: that have the best raw shit. I actually have been on a private jet before. Um, I have a uncle that was very successful in oh, nice. his career as a CEO of a chicken farm. Oh, like one of the big ones. Um, so like a Tyson competitor. And uh, I don't know much about the business, but...
1: Dang, so this podcast is big meat propaganda. We're, yeah. working, we're working for the big chickens.
0: I'm a, a meat industry nepo baby.
1: Yeah, yeah, you got me on here to be the defected vegan. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny.
0: So now that I've exposed my true intentions, I'm about to take a little piece of raw liver. that's like the color what? of... I don't know,
1: it's the color of like a grape
0: Jolly Rancher.
1: Yeah, it's like kind of scary, like it's... Okay, nice, I, I guess I gotta do it too. And it's from Jewel Osco, which mm-hmm.
0: I have no idea, Ugh. it's really gross, it tastes like... Oh dear god. I can, I'm not like gagging, but...
1: Yeah, it's grisly, it's got like a, like,
0: oh god, now I'm gagging. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my god, where's
1: my beer, oh my god. It's like when old people breathe on you, kind of <gasps> like a like an old Catholic priest, kind br- <laughs> of oh like giving like a nice like breathy piece of advice to you. Jesus Christ!
2: Oh, uh, you guys chew okay. it.
0: <laughs> okay, you know what? I was chewing it, and that's what made me. Gag, And then I just realized I could just swallow it. I think you can yes. just slurp it. Yeah, you don't have yep. to spend too much time First caring.
2: rule of liver consumption, do not chew. <laughs> That's what I've learned. This is
0: really good to know <laughs> because this was really a stopping point for me. Uh, this time last year, I was doing seed, seed oil free for mm. a good chunk of time. That was at least like my goal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. And as a part of just that health trend, learned about all of the... Nutritional benefits of eating beef liver. Yes. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go buy some beef liver. And the first time I bought beef liver, it was from that grocery store that I was just telling you about, not this Julasco mystery liver. Yes, right. Quote Um, unquote liver. But yeah, and this was also like frozen, I had to thaw it. But chewing it is really, really gross. And I feel like, yeah, just like swallowing it down is pretty simple.
1: Yeah, it's gross, but I feel like I gotta go in for a little bit more. I'm gonna do it. I'll, I'll take another little Wait, do you have the knife over here?
0: Um, no, you probably have to go grab it from the kitchen. Okay, I'll over right Okay, cool. Oh my goodness. Okay, yeah, actually, so much better now that I'm not chewing yes. it. Yes,
2: yeah. Swallow it down, wash it down with, like, apple, apple juice, orange juice. That's what I've done in the past. And then you don't think twice. <laughs> the less you know you're eating the, the liver, the, the better it is.
0: All right, Anthony just went to get a knife so he can cut himself a little, like, bite-sized piece. Yeah, I definitely got to grab
1: some more. Yeah, no, we should just go into, like, our food histories, I feel like. Because you are saying you are doing the seed oil thing. I've mentioned being vegetarian. At, at this point, like, after after defecting and eating meat again, I'd say, like, I have no real agenda with what I eat. Yeah. It's honestly pretty...
0: I literally work at Grubhub and order at least $50 a week of delivery. It's <laughs> nice. because I get $50 allocated to me from... The company is like Monopoly, play money, whatever I want to order. So it's contributing to this narrative of me actually being a big industry guy that yeah. is big meat plant has a lot of ulterior motives in this conversation. But I don't own enough. I don't know. Grubhub stock is doing really horribly. I have some stuff of their stock, and it's really, 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 really doing bad. <laughs> I don't know, like what I could say right now to like help that I don't know we're, we're so profitable we're like doing so well if the board of investors is listening y'all should be so confident that we're the most successful tech moment at, <laughs> yeah, yeah anyway um, but no I did do the seed oil free thing for a while and prior to that I did in the pandemic out of boredom because it almost is like for me like an escapism thing to find a, an obsession I don't know if that, like, resonates, but for me, it sometimes comes up out of boredom. In the pandemic, I was really big into just eating high-protein meals and working out and trying to avoid seed oils. I don't know what I would call it. Just trying to trying to be hot, like, build <laughs> <Yes>. muscle. <laughs> That's, That's what it is. That's <laughs> my main motivator at this point. I don't particularly, yeah, like, factor the environment in. Yeah. Um, I do kind of have, like, a resistance to palm oil still. Yeah, that was
1: part of my vegan thing. I wouldn't do anything with, like, palm oil or vitamin A palmitate or anything in it.
0: Well, the seed oil thing, I think, is really both environmental and health. Yeah. Like, if I had to choose one, I'd probably choose health. But, like, yeah, like, the canola oil fields are some of the worst in terms of, like, what do you call it? Single crop farms. Is Mm -hmm. that the term? That ruin the soil.
2: Yeah, the monocropping.
0: Monocropping. And canola oil is like, I don't even know who made that word up because that plant is, it's called a Mm rapeseed plant or something, but they don't want to sell you like rapeseed oil. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's got a a harsh ring to it.
0: Yeah, but that's what (laughs) canola oil is, I'm pretty sure, is it's Mm -hmm. rapeseed oil. Palm oil, I think, is not as unhealthy, but it is pretty egregious as far as I know in terms of the environmental thing. Mm But, yeah, I mean, it's it's just hard to cut either of those out because restaurants cook everything in seed oils. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of time to cook, but I do want to be hot and I want to not be, like, gassy. And yeah. those things, yeah, stick around as motivations for me. And I'll pass the mic to Hanuk before I keep rambling. Amazing.
2: Yeah, I would say... I mean, a little bit of history of my relationship to food, all that jazz. Uh, I grew up with a German mother who cooked every single day and she brought over when she immigrated a lot of, for lack of a better word, ancestral eating habits, which worked out really well in my favor because I grew up, you know, eating... Raw dairy, and I grew up eating lots of nutrient dense meats, and I grew up eating very seasonally. But even so, I mean, I've had conversations with my mom where where her and my dad both in the early two thousands were like vegetarian for periods of time, and they did sort of the alternative meats and the alternative fat sources, which goes to show how pervasive, you know, the language and the messaging we get about our food is that even you know somebody like my mom who grew up in East Germany and ate a lot of very German nutrient dense foods when she came to the States was for a period of time influenced by our food propaganda here. Um, So I grew up with a lot of home-cooked meals, um, which I think is probably the biggest gift that I could have ever received and then in high school I was vegan for a period of time and I believe it was mostly for environmental reasons or or maybe it was just like the self-righteousness of being 15 where I was like I want to do something that makes me seem better than everybody else (laughs) so I remember being vegan and like you know just lashing my tongue at my younger brother about eating cream cheese and oh my god terrible stuff (laughs) but I was (laughs) I was vegan for about three or four months and I lost like 10 to 15 pounds and I was already a pretty skinny kid and Uh my body just was like please feed me like please do not continue to do this and I think it was more more subtle messaging but yeah I felt I mean my energy levels were really low I you know I mean I just had a hard time finding something to eat it was such a restrictive way of eating for me Um, and I'm very grateful that I stopped doing that after just a couple of months. And I don't exactly remember why. I mean, probably just like out of convenience. I was like, I just can't keep eating diet fake vegan cheese because it's disgusting and I miss mac and cheese. So, um... So I had a little stint of veganism. And then I kind of stopped really having like a dialogue with myself about my food and my nourishment. Moved to Chicago, obviously, after high school. That's how I met Chris. Best roommate I've ever had.
0: Aww.
2: Truly. Loved our times in the, house, in the house in Pilsen. We ate pretty good, right? We ate good. And I attempted a little garden, which was fun. I mean, I've always been very like garden-oriented. And growing my own food has been really exciting to me for a long time. But moving to Chicago, I was like, well, shit. I got to work if i want to go to the grocery store i have to like take the bus or walk through like five degree weather so it just became a lot harder to have you know food that was both nourishing and accessible which i really feel like is such a byproduct of our food system is that we do not have nourishing food that is accessible either by cost barriers or by like literal location barriers or time barriers Capitalism is a whole thing.
0: Yeah, we don't have a like nationally or just even worldwide. There's no shortage of calorically dense foods, but yes. there is a shortage of like nutritionally totally. dense foods. Or not shortage, but not there's not as much corporate level incentive to think about nutrition.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. which I think, makes yeah like. Go ahead, i'm oh,
1: Sorry, I was just gonna say yeah. I think like. When, when things really started to hit recently with like the you know I, I, I'm not an economist I don't know if we're in a recession or not I don't really get how money works but like I don't know things seem tight <laughs> right now and exactly. I think like the first stores that Whole Foods closed were like the Ingle- like the, you know as a Chicago podcast I think they closed the Inglewood Whole Foods like first wow. oh, so like okay. and that was I mean I guess um,
0: that's south right
1: Yeah, that'd be a whole thing to talk about, I guess, like, because, like, some people were against the opening of the Inglewood, like, Whole Foods anyway, because they thought it was, like, a sign of gentrification or something. Oh, sure. But then, you know, after it was there, it was, like, kind of, like, the best place to go get, like, quality, like, healthy food. Yeah, I think that that
0: probably, that benefit, I don't know, yeah, the, the gentrification thing, it's, like, I guess, like, things can be, like, symbolic of it, but...
1: I think the people who live there, I i don't want to speak for anybody, but it seemed like it was, like, kind of appreciated, but now it's, Gone. I think, going to close. And Damn. then, yeah, the West Garfield Park, Aldi closed, I think, in the last year or so.
0: I love Aldi.
1: So, yeah, I think the, the food desert situation in Chicago is, like, definitely on the rise, I would say. I
0: yeah. imagine that's mostly on the south side. At least from what I've read, there's... A lot of food deserts down there as well as mississippi which is ironic since it's agriculturally such a good environment for growing food yeah
1: like if we had a world where people like ate the stuff close to where they lived it should be like really good yeah yeah yeah,
0: exactly i want to go back to okay the vegan thing hannah you said you lost weight and anthony you said you gained weight so i mean that's i guess at the end of the day it's just like caloric deficit versus Nutritional deficit.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I was hitting the peanut butter pretty hard when I was a vegan. Yeah, I think I would go through like, like my family had their own peanut butter, and then I had my own separate jars of peanut butter for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I like. I, I mean, yeah, because you're, I mean, you're craving food like all day when you're vegan, yeah. or at least from what I remember, it's like you're yeah. never really Statuted. full. Yeah, Yeah, unless you eat, like, a a huge pasta meal or something like that. But, like, I remember being pretty much hungry all the time. Like, I was actually, wow. I never put the connections together, but now I'm thinking about it. I got voted uh, always snacking in high school as my, like, senior superlative (laughs) in the yearbook. (laughs) And that makes sense. It's because I was vegan and just always wanted to eat. You were never,
0: (laughs) yeah, fully satisfied. And so you probably had a caloric surplus.
1: Oh, big time, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was running pretty regularly, too. Like, I, I mean, I think I ran like six days of the week, like at least three miles every day. Sometimes like up to like seven or eight, probably. But uh, yeah, definitely gaining weight from how much peanut butter I'd eat. Well,
0: I think that explains itself then, because Hannah, as opposed to being constantly hungry and always wanting a snack, maybe you were just averse to so many foods for this variety of reasons that you ended up just not getting enough calories and you lost weight. Yeah, It sounds like you both had a nutritional deficit. Yeah. But then one of you had a caloric deficit while the other had the caloric surplus. So neither of you are satisfied with your health in that period of time. And I mean, I know it's not all about weight gain or weight loss. I know my cousin who was vegan, vegetarian for a long period of time, And when she finally started eating meat again, I'm pretty sure from her own words, she had an improvement in skin, hair, mental health, energy, (laughs) and she lost weight. Mm
1: -hmm. And I don't
0: know if that meant that she was more satisfied and did not have to snack as much, or if her body just had more nutrients and was able to function at a higher level. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I've never been a vegan before, but I do intermittent fasting pretty frequently, which also sometimes has had a positive impact on my like mental clarity and just general mood in the positive, uh, probably not a universal experience. I think a lot of other people would say that fasting is bad for their mood. <laughs> but anyway, I've also counted calories, which people jokingly, or I don't know, maybe earnestly, malign me for
1: counting calories for counting calories yeah yeah that was my thing I tried to get into over the summer I was like I have I, I can you my spreadsheets Yeah, where I have like I have all my macros and like calories tracked but then I got kind of obsessive about that and like yeah now I would say my diet is like again going back to chaos and the joker I would say that's pretty much how my, my diet is but like <laughs> I'm like clearly lactose intolerant but I think I have pizza and ice cream like four nights a week mm. uh So, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out something that works for me, which I don't know if it's going to be this raw meat, to be honest with you.
0: I don't know either. So, Hana, we did go ahead and eat some of this ribeye. Okay, raw? Raw.
2: Amazing. Uh Uh-huh. How did that go? I chewed it. Yes. (laughs) Was it better than the liver?
0: A lot better in terms of, yeah, the chewing experience. Yes. And the taste experience. I would do another bite of the ribeye.
1: Yeah, the ribeye, it's like, it, it tastes really good after you've had the liver. Yeah. If you yeah. prime it with the liver, the <laughs> ribeye just tastes like fantastic. Like, Ooh, yeah, this is some
2: good That's shit. a good way to just trick yourself into eating nourishing foods is just have a little bite of liver first, and then everything else is going to taste really good following.
0: <laughs> <laughs> From here, we can either really dive into the raw meat thing, or I know... Anthony just mentioned being lactose intolerant Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's a really good segue for the milk conversation. Yeah. Let's do the milk. I'm going to go ahead and say it because I'm about to start this tangent anyway. Hannah, I'm going to like give a summary of my understanding of raw milk activist points of view around lactose intolerance and then I'm going to let you like tell me if anything I said made any sense at all. I love it. Let's do it. Okay, so... I think a lot of people that have lactose intolerance are missing, like, an enzyme. The milk that they consume has been pasteurized, so there's an enzyme that's missing. And then because they're missing it, they react poorly to all dairy or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Does that Did that make any sense? Yes.
2: So I feel like the... The easiest way that my brain has come to understand raw milk is a just through drinking it, but also be diving into like a tiny little history of our own evolutionary biology as a species. Um, so if it's cool with y'all, I'll give just a really quick synopsis of very surface level. I am not like an anthropologist, a milk anthropologist, although that would be hot, Um, this is just the little bits of gleaning that I've done for, you know, my own edification. But pretty much like 10,000 years ago, plus or minus a couple thousand years, our collective ancestors didn't consume a lot of dairy. They were lots of like hunter-gatherer. And then with the rise of agriculture also came the rise of domestication of herd animals like camels and cattle and goats and stuff, um, specifically in Northern Europe, in Eastern Africa and in the Middle East. So... There is, to my understanding from an article that I skimmed, all sorts of archaeological evidence, like dental evidence, of this turning point about 10,000 years ago in our species, where we began to domesticate these herd animals. And as a result of the domestication, there began this beautiful co-evolution with milk as the central point of that co-evolutionary point, where our ancestors began to consume dairy products, initially in the form of fermented cheeses, because that enzyme that you were talking about chris yes like there is an enzyme that is present in our stomachs when we are babies and it's called lactase and it's a digestive enzyme so babies are born human babies and i'm sure lots of other mammalian babies perhaps all are born with a digestive enzyme called lactase and that enzyme is primarily responsible for breaking down lactose which is the sugar that is present in dairy that a lot of people are intolerant to and so 10,000 years ago, our microbiology, we didn't have an ability to synthesize lactase beyond infancy. So once babies were done nursing, then the digestive enzyme, the presence of lactase disappeared. So what happened about 10,000 years ago, when we started consuming raw dairy products, a like an evolution, a genetic mutation took place that pretty much prolonged the production of lactase in our systems throughout our lives instead of just in our infancy. So there's sort of like this co-evolution where when we started drinking milk, our bodies adapted and produced this genetic variation to allow us to continue producing that enzyme, lactase. This is a lot of like science, history, all of that stuff. And I perhaps will also get lost in my own explanation of all of it. But lactase, digestive enzyme. 10,000 years ago, we started drinking milk. And what happened as a result of this, so the theory goes, is the populations that were consuming lactose products, milks and cheeses, they received far more dietary nourishment than their counterparts did and said so there were booms in population in our ancestral populations that consumed dairy, which is to say that if you eat dairy you're more likely to fuck, you're more likely to produce, your babies are more likely to live. So, through this sort of um, natural selective process, the genetic mutation allowed for people to consume dairy through adulthood. And that was passed down, passed down, passed down. So, presently, about 35% of the global population still possesses that genetic mutation that allows us to digest the the lactose in the milk. And 35% is not a lot, um, but it is considerable. And I mean, it lends to the whole like history of milk consumption and stuff like that. Um, I'm gonna pause really quickly and see if there's questions or clarification, because I definitely got lost a little bit in my own explanation of all of that. Lots of information was just said. Are there any questions for the class?
1: So I'm trying to imagine, like, so people start drinking dairy and then, like, whatever part of us that, like, couldn't keep up with dairy consumption in our genetics got, like, bred out of the population, essentially. So, yeah, does that just mean, like, the people who couldn't keep up and, like, consume dairy were just, like... Like, did they die, or did they just like not enter the the gene pool? Like, they were just like, out, like no one. Yeah, like we're not gonna fuck anybody who can't like keep question. up with the dairy.
2: That's it. We're not gonna fuck anybody who can't keep up with the dairy. I want that on a bumper sticker. Yeah, that's funny. It sounds like
1: that's how that happened. And uh, another curiosity that I have is like which. Like countries and geographic areas was this happening in because mm-hmm. it seems this seems to it, like if you take into account the fact that like lactose intolerance is higher in like non-white populations mm-hmm. like I, I think like the uh the percentage of like white european descendant people who are lactose intolerant is like way tinier than like the percentage of like black and asian people who are yeah, yeah. lactose intolerant so this like so but yeah so was it like european cultures that first started doing this stuff or was it yeah middle east or like yeah at what point did that like start happening
0: yeah well definitely not asia they did they don't like dairy that from what i understand Mm -hmm. but i want to bring this to like a religious place um (laughs) and the way i'm going to do that okay exodus 3 8 says i don't know what interpretation this is i just googled something and this came up um Here God speaks to Moses. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from that land into a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of Canaanites and the Hittites. Okay, a lot of ites here, but this, this, okay, a land flowing with milk and honey, I think milk was thought of as like a gift from god Mm -hmm. and cows are also revered in certain cultures i know hinduism i believe is the one Mm -hmm. that has the most sacred emphasis on cows but they don't eat as much meat that's a much more vegetarian culture but they do love ghee Mm -hmm. which is type of like butter very Mm -hmm. pure butter and i don't know I, i think there's something to be said about Okay, if you're going into the winter, like you were sort of making this reference earlier, getting all your nuts and berries together, or I guess just nuts, because your berries would go bad, (laughs) but just your nuts together. You could also take any fermented dairy product, Mm -hmm. like that would include yogurt or kefir. Or or craft uh, uh, nitro milk stout. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what the the canaanites found when they left egypt for sure biblical scholars over here so okay yeah i I feel like fermented milk being a yummy healthy thing that also can last a long time like Mm pre-refrigeration was probably like a contributing factor to people viewing it as a gift from god i mean the distinction between like hinduism which doesn't eat as much meat and then views cows as sacred versus say like islam which i don't think places any certain animals as specifically like godly but does have restrictions around pork versus beef which is a lot healthier than pork (laughs) from my understanding partially because of their diet but also because i think cows have all of these extra stomachs or organs or something Mm -hmm. so even if you do like have a cow that has a bad diet i don't think it affects their meat product nearly as much as say it would for Mm -hmm. a pig and i don't know like a lot of food trend people like the pro beef specifically um, do kind of characterize the cow as like a perfect creation, um, but in its ability to itself be an herbivore, if I'm not mistaken, and produce so much meat for humans. And uh, yeah, and then also create dairy, which can be used for a variety of purposes and also stay like edible throughout the winter. Yeah, cows are pretty cool. I think, yeah, I think I'm, I get it. I get why people attribute this sort of gift from God language. The
1: general vibe, like respect a cow.
0: Yeah, it's just like, yeah, there's, I don't know any religion that's like not a fan of cows. Yeah. The Quran forbids eating pork. And then the Bible, Old Testament has text that forbids eating shellfish.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, things with cloven hooves. Isn't really? Part of it. I know it's a Jewish thing. It depends on the type of hoof that the animal has.
0: What kind of hoofs do cows have? Are they good?
1: I think I think cows are chill, but I think that's what bans pork because that they have. And you know, what this is a fact checking kind of moment. I'm, yeah, I don't want to go stupid. out on a limb, and I don't want to spread disinformation <laughs> to the public.
0: Yeah, we have really high standards here at Cute and on Broadcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, Johnny, Johnny Mitchell was not going to be happy.
0: <laughs> right wait what was her thing she, I can't even remember
1: she didn't want Joe Rogan uh, uh, spreading vaccine misinformation oh, so, so she she's... took her music off of Spotify Oh, Spotify. So, you know, you know. so if we spread misinformation about cloven hooves we got a lot of enemies
0: Uh-oh. yeah that's, that's gonna be a hard one to fit in because I think cows do have cloven hooves but I have never heard that I know that like they're considered ruminant mammals which means that they uh walk around
2: (laughs) (laughs) nailed it (laughs) they're like razors I think that's that's my understanding of the word ruminant cows and sheep and yak and like animals that I think predominantly feed off of vegetation
0: reindeer
2: yeah totally can't forget those
1: okay so it looks like in it looks like in judaism cloven hooves and chewing cud are good things so if you chew the cud or if you have a cloven hoof you're good you're in the clear but if you don't do either of those things okay thank god i know (laughs) the jews are safe
0: here (laughs) for now (laughs) no malignment of the jews on this episode Okay. Oh, yeah, no, uh, K-
1: Kanye is back into uh, Jews again. Did you see that? Because of Jonah Hill? Today? Yeah.
0: That was today, yeah. That
1: was, yeah, like this morning or something.
0: Good, okay, then we can keep that momentum up.
1: Yeah, uh Yeah. pro jew podcast, of course. Thank
0: you, thank you for saying that. Okay, I, fuck, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, and, okay, America was very, used to be much more populated by the ruminant buffalo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, is that just an undomesticated sort of uh, cousin of the cow? I think so.
2: Well, the buffalo was, um, yeah, I mean, undomesticated is sort of an interesting word, I think, in that context, because I know that a lot of the indigenous populations of the Americas had, like, relationship with the buffalo um, for food and for hide materials. I mean, they had, to my understanding, like, it was sort of embedded in a sacredness, a sacred relationship with the buffalo, and the buffalo would provide food and meat and hide and the bones would be turned into instruments. Um, So I don't know if there was domestication and sort of the Western colonialized understanding of the word domestication, um, which sort of supposits the human above the non-human. But I do know that there was relationship that was happening with those indigenous people and the indigenous ruminant buffaloes of this part of the world.
0: That's dope. Okay. I didn't even realize that would be a distinction that would come up, but it makes a lot of sense that the like, yeah, modern Western understanding of domestication as the concept might differ from other historical human animal relationships.
1: Yeah, like the difference of like the animals living with people rather than for people or mm-hmm.
2: something.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well you said ten thousand years ago and that was in
1: reference to when we first started to drink milk. Yes. Yeah, but the buffaloes were around like 120 some years ago, right? 150, definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we don't milk. Can you milk a buffalo? I
2: imagine I <laughs> you could. I don't know enough about buffalo milk. I think you can I think actually. Any yeah, any sort of mammal. I mean, you know, you can milk like a fucking what, platypus. Like <laughs> you could milk a whale well, if you're brave parents? enough. <laughs>
1: The, the meet the parents, yeah. Yes. Yeah, anything with nipples you can milk. <laughs> can you milk me, Greg? <laughs> 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 that scene was so funny. So, okay, yeah, uh, it's it,
0: if you're milking an animal... Do, wait, actually, let me just say, do you know if Native Americans milked any animals?
2: I don't know with any certainty whether or not they would... I mean, I do know that, like, cattle and other ruminants were largely introduced during colonialism. So I don't believe that, like, again, I'm not, like, an expert. I'm not entirely sure. um, But my understanding of, like, the little bit of investigation I've done into, like, indigenous diet is that there's not a lot of, like, milk-derived products. Lots of...
0: Okay, Anthony just did some fact-checking. So I'm going to let him read what he just found. This is actually makes a lot of sense to me.
1: No, Hannah's good. I think everything you said checks out with the facts. I don't think you have any issues with Joni Mitchell yet.
2: Okay. Uh, Thank God.
1: (laughs) The American Indians had no domesticated mammals at the the time, with the exception of populations in South America that had llamas and alpacas. So I guess there's a little bit of milk going on down there. So there was no dairy from animals in pre-colonial America before the arrival of Europeans with cattle and sheep, according to Quora.com. Got it. And well, that seems like a a rubric for what
0: counts as domestication, is if you're milking
1: it. Right. Mm. Because it seems pretty invasive.
0: Yeah. And it's once you start milking it, it needs to be milked again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or else it'll be in pain. Hana, chime in. You have... (laughs) You have some... You have some... uh,
1: Maybe some experience with... Wait, yeah, because it it does feel like a colonial endeavor. Yeah, how do you decolonize milk?
0: Yeah. Like, Like, how do you have... Can
1: you tell us, like, what
0: it's like to have Finally, we're getting to the
2: good stuff. That's such an interesting line of questioning here. Yeah, let me gather my thoughts here for a second.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. Take a second. Also, like, simple question. Yes. About cows. Or about, like, women. <laughs>
2: <laughs> One in the same. are
0: <laughs> if, you're, if you're producing milk, because your body has a hormone that has you know let your milkers know that it's time (laughs) (laughs) um and then once you're producing it it's not like you can like turn it on and off it's like oh bitch like we're we're producing milk and you better be ready when it comes and if you don't you're going to be in a lot of pain and that's probably also true for animals with Uh, Udders is is that true? Like, because pregnant women that breastfeed are gonna have to like keep a pump around because
2: I have no firsthand experience producing milk. I obviously have firsthand experience drinking breast milk, so I can (laughs) attest to that. But I do know, as somebody with boobs or mommy milkers or udders, however we want to refer to them, the process of weaning it's called, which I love that word because it sounds like weenie. But it's the process of weaning. So after about Really anywhere between like and these numbers could be completely off, but it is very much dependent on the mother. And I'm speaking about human mothers right now. I don't really know about cows, but the baby will essentially nurse until the mother, quote unquote, either weans the baby, which means like her milk supplies are um, diminishing naturally right? or she like goes dry you know what I mean so it's all sort of a very like natural process of like the baby will nurse until you know I mean I think I nursed until I was like two or three years old and then that's when the introduction of like solid foods and tangent begins yeah
0: so I guess like naturally a an animal or a woman has a uh, <laughs> hormonal disposition to produce milk after giving birth for a certain period of time until hormonal situation changes and then they wean or dry up concurrently. And yeah. that amount of time that that hormone is being produced is probably like also the amount of time that it takes their kid to like get teeth or something.
2: Totally. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, we,
0: we just looked up that for farmers, dairy farmers, they... What did it say? Are they like
1: yeah to keep the to keep the milk up. I think you have to like artificially impregnate the cow like at least once a year. Okay. So they have something called like a rape rack that they set up. Yeah. Yeah, which is like very very vulgar, but I think yeah. that's like an that's industry term. Terrifying. Yeah, which which is uh, yeah a device that like it's essentially like a a thing that they use to jam uh, uh, their arms up the cow's rectum in order to locate and position the uterus. Uh, And then they force an instrument like into, let's see here, I'm on PETA.org, so take it maybe with a grain (laughs) of salt. It's like artificial insemination, basically. Mm
2: -hmm. I do want to mention that the artificial insemination, I mean, and I have little relationship with an inseminating cattle. (laughs) In fact, none.
1: It was years ago for me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we all had those,
0: we all had those crazy times in high school. Exactly. Oh my gosh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Typical Saturday night right there. (laughs) I am friends with a couple dairy farmers who produce on a very small scale and I think like artificial insemination when you're producing dairy on a large scale and I feel like this there's a beautiful dovetail into um just a little bit more milk fun facts raw versus pasteurized you know industrialized versus local. But the CAFOs, these concentrated animal food operations, I'm not sure if either of y'all have are familiar with that term. I can imagine since we're all here having this conversation together. <laughs> I don't know
1: actually, maybe not. Maybe not. that means at all.
2: But CAFO, yeah. CAFOs are like the big ag of animal production. It stands for concentrated animal food operation. And our American food system relies very heavily on CAFOs to produce meat and dairy. And that happens on like an industrial scale. So when we think about like industrial dairy production, we're thinking about thousands of cows jam-packed together yeah. in their own shit. And I was reading an article this morning in preparation, and the whole sort of reason that we as a society here in the West began pasteurizing dairy um, was in a large part because of urbanization and when higher costs concentrations of people began living together in place, the dairy producers and the meat producers, I mean, all of the food producers were ruralized, you know, they were sent out of the cities. And then the supply chains between um, production and consumption of a product like dairy became a lot longer. And so milk that was up until that point unpasteurized began being susceptible to all of these foodborne pathogens like E. coli and salmonella and stuff like that. And so that is sort of a little bit of history about our own dairy production here. But what happens these days on like CAFO scale dairy facilities is that it's like, yeah, thousands of cows in their own shit. They are like a third of all cows in CAFO dairy farms have mastitis, which is an infection of the udder that is like one of the two most common sources of pathogens in milk. So that's sort of why pasteurization is happening right now on a large scale. Like that's why you don't get large scale raw milk, because like raw milk and large scale animal farming can't really exist side by side side because these KFO operations are inhumane and they are like right. disease ridden and all of that. So that's a little bit of a tangent. I'm not sure if there was like an actual focal point of that line of thought.
0: I think we can just like follow that tangent.
1: Yeah, Amazing. definitely. That's an interesting point. Because I I mean, in 2023, I feel like that's fun to talk about because I, I remember Like, way pre-COVID, people saying that we were awaiting some kind of pandemic that was going to come from, yeah, like, essentially factory farming. Like, those kind of diseases were going to become, like, highly antibiotic-resistant, and we were going to have, like, some kind of bacterial infection or something that is, like, too strong for anything. And and I I thought that's the pandemic that we were supposed to have, but I guess Mm -hmm.
2: not. Time yet?
1: (laughs) Well, this also gets to the larger point that I came here to argue, which is that factory farming is kind of just like the Democratic Party in a lot of ways. In this way, specifically, I guess, because it produces pandemics. Uh, I mean, okay. Hot take. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of just this, like, large, generally accepted, but, like, never really critically analyzed presence, like, kind of in our in our lives. But then it's like, when you start to sort of face the injustices of it and say, like, okay, I don't like the way animals are treated, or I don't like what it's doing to the environment or something. You know, in the same way that you could say, okay, I'm upset with the Democratic Party, so I'm going to be you know, either become right-wing or I'm going to become like a Bernie bro who's like trying to like change the way the Democratic Party operates. It it feels like that's the way people felt about factory farming. And then it's sort of like, okay, either you go grass-fed meat, small-scale, non-industrial local farming, or you go like completely vegan or something. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like with like veganism and vegetarianism being like the Bernie bro parallel. And then, you know, the right-wing thing being like just eating raw meat, like liver king style or something.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. alpha male behavior. Like yeah, just steak. And I, I
1: feel like I would attribute like a lot of the I don't know increase in like the trendiness of the raw meat, raw milk, raw way sure. of or whatever, has to do with you know sort of failures and co- inherent contradictions of veganism mm-hmm. and vegetarianism. The same way I think a lot of people are feeling about, like, left-leaning politics in general. I mean, I think that's why a lot of stuff is becoming yeah. sort of, I don't know, I guess, like, conservative. Like, Gen Z's becoming more culturally and conservative because they're seeing sort of the, like, every, like, everybody's disappointed with the mainstream thing that's happening. Yeah. Whether it's factory farming or, like, the Democratic Party. And then it's like, if your tendency is to go left, all of a sudden you start seeing these contradictions, and then it starts pushing people right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Just classic pendulum moment. So, I guess we'll see where that goes from there, but...
0: Okay, so... With Bernie bros, with the Bernie bro thing, there's been, would you say, an ideological pipeline for people that were socialist adjacent to now being a little bit more, like, I don't even know if right-wing is the word, but maybe, yeah, maybe conservative.
1: Or, or at the very least, like, ideologically apathetic. I think yeah. Like, that can be part of it.
0: Or cynical, or just, like, government bad. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Because socialism is liking the government <laughs> yeah i think those things were definitely linked like when i was in high school i mean yeah because i like i remember i graduated high school in 2016 and i was like uh you know like a bernie broke kid i went to like the bernie rallies and like to me the veganism was like linked with that where it's like we feel like the world's going to shit whether that's in terms of you know climate change or growing like income inequality and stuff and so you have to feel like you can do something about it and like your veganism and being vegetarian felt like okay you were doing something about climate change through the way you were changing your diet going to the bernie rally like meant that you were doing something because you were trying to vote for somebody who's going to get everybody health care and stuff and i think just like yeah just growing up and seeing like the failures of these things like realizing that an interest in veganism is just going to turn into like a whole slew of new plastic covered advertised products that are going to show up in my instagram feed and at whole foods and stuff like that like it, it, it's not going to create the kind of necessary, like, cultural shift to, like, really, really reduce our carbon outputs. Um, so, like, seeing that kind of shit, like, the increase in, like, yeah, just plastic vegan products, essentially, along with, like, of course, like, you know, Bernie getting fucked and, like, any kind of online, uh, you know, le- further left than Bernie kind of politics just descending into, like, the dumbest shit ever. Yeah. Um, that, like, didn't really achieve anything. I, I, I think that is, like, I don't know that it's pushed people to the right. I mean, maybe in some senses, I guess that's kind of like what a lot of like the Red Scare fan base is like kind of doing now, I guess. But like, I, I think it's at the very least made people like ideologically apathetic meat eaters.
2: <laughs> Bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Another one.
0: The Red Scare transition from because they were more socialist at the beginning, to what would we call i mean i don't know i have have trouble with like defining right-wing conservative also is sort of complicated because like think about conservative and conservation are like the same letters right and the same roots the same words the different suffix but they're not used in the same way you know what i mean like conservatives are not particularly associated with, like, environmentalism. But, like, based on the word conserve and conservation, you would... You'd think, like, conserving nature
1: would go hand-in-hand with conserving traditions or something? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and maybe... I feel like now it's starting to be, like... I feel like the people, like, the sort of socialist exodus crowd is claiming the word conservative in a different way Mm -hmm. because it's about, like, returning to living off the land or returning to uh, how would i put it just like the way god intended us to live it's like family values essentially which should be something that everyone has a positive response to but it's used to basically like describe homophobia Mm -hmm. and a lot of conversations like if you say family values you're basically signaling yeah like traditional
1: like conservative used to mean like appreciation for free markets but ultimately serving christian morality or something like a western society yeah but nowadays you're saying like conservative means more like uh, like hey i just want to have a family man like like i just yeah. want to have kids that are healthy please basically. yeah
0: please can i please like have a, a family am i allowed is that allowed and then that's called like trad because we don't want to be like wage slaves sure yeah for the rest of our life without any like option for like a meaningful like retirement Mm -hmm. but at least like (laughs) at least if we have kids like they can hopefully take care of us otherwise we're just gonna be like fucked like I mean it's just like a disillusionment and I think those the way that we use like the word conservative is changing
2: I am noticing a shift in myself and in the culture around me like away from the government telling us how to live i mean and specifically in context to diet how to eat what to eat when to eat where to eat um i think i see this like general shift away from like okay i'm actually no longer going to partake in this story that is being fed to me by the quote-unquote powers that be and i'm going to return to the land and i'm going to return to sort of like i mean traditional to me is an interesting word because especially like we are living in a colonialized country and whose tradition you know are we acknowledging when we talk about traditional practices? Um, I think at the root of all traditional practices, if we look globally, is like a return to relationship with Earth, living with the land, you know, like practicing good community with one another, like producing your own resources instead of consuming them from globally overseas. So I think there's definitely a tie in. And I mean, I almost consider myself to be like apolitical because I find that there's so much more to experience in this lifetime than wrapping myself up in some sort of ideology. And in that I find myself leaning, if I have to name it, like libertarian almost like small government, keep your hands off my shit, let me make good decisions for myself and my family and my people and let everybody else do the same for themselves too. Like I think people are far smarter than we give ourselves credit for and we don't really need some sort of overbearing government to tell us what to do, when to do and how to do it. So yeah, final thoughts, I'm like, y'all are capable of making decisions for yourself, you're smart, you know you know what's best for you and I think anything that gets in the way of that politically is just a waste of time.
0: If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Here is a preview of some of the deleted scenes available on Patreon.
1: It kind of parallels the like, fluoride in the water thing. Like, is, like isn't fluoride in the water supposed to be good for you? Obviously, I'm supposed to eat that. Like, look at it. You know what I mean? I think we have different reactions to bulges.
2: I find those things to be, like, a Band-Aid solution to a fabricated problem.